if there's someone in your life who is hard to please. Uh, it might be, if you're at school, it might be a teacher. Uh, when they mark your essays, they seem a bit inconsistent. You think you've done something to please them with one essay, and then you get picked up for something in the next essay. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a boss, maybe you're at work, and you've, uh, you've, you've got this boss, and it doesn't matter how efficient you are, uh, how much work you do, how much business you bring in, uh, they always seem very hard to please. Or maybe it's someone in your own house who's a bit hard to please. And I'll just leave that little grenade there for you to, to think about. The truth is, I think we all know people who are hard to please, either because they've got such high standards that are difficult to reach, or they change their mind about what they like, or because they just don't tell us what it is that will make them happy. Well, in tonight's passage, Paul is going to explain to the Thessalonians how to please God. And the beauty of it, as we'll see, is that this is not Paul's best guess about what pleases God. There's no, there's no guesswork here. As we'll see, these are Paul, uh, God's very own instructions about how to please him. And tonight is the first of uh, two sermons in chapter 4 in which God instructs us and instructs the Thessalonians in two areas that they need to please him in. Tonight we're going to look at the area of sexual purity, and then next week we're going to look at the idea of brotherly love. So what does this passage tonight in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tell us about how God wants believers to please him in the area of sexual purity? Well, let's read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 together. Hopefully you've uh, got your, your Bibles, and that's on page 1187 of the Pew Bibles. And although we're focusing on uh, verses 3 to 8 tonight, we're going to start from uh, verse 1. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit." May God bless the reading of his word to us this evening. The first thing that we see in this passage is that the Thessalonians had a calling from God. They can please God by understanding that they had a, a calling from God, and that is, that is our first point. Look at with me at verse 3 again. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And then down in verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. 
The Thessalonians had a calling from God to live holy lives, and in so doing, please God. You see, the Thessalonian Christians had been part of a culture uh, where they pleased themselves. Now they had a new calling on their life, to live holy lives, and in so doing, please God. We know that pleasing God is Paul's priority. We saw that last week in chapter 4, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are now living. You see, as we moved last week into chapter 4, we've moved into the, the second chunk of this letter. Paul's main aim in the first part of the letter, up to the end of chapter 3, was to give this young church assurance that they were true believers, assurance that their faith was genuine, that they were true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, real Christians. And he gives them hard evidence throughout this section, this first section, that, that this is the case, that in spite of all the hardship that they were facing, that they were genuine believers. And when we moved into chapter 4 last week, Paul's aim, his focus, has changed. His focus has moved from assuring them that they are believers to instructing them how to live as believers, to live as those who please God. And the truth is, they really needed these instructions. You see, this was a young church. They were new believers, and they needed to understand the life that they'd been called to live. They were saved from a lifestyle and a surrounding culture which was very different to the lifestyle of a Christian believer and the culture of a Christian church. And Paul is aware that there are ways in which this church needs to grow in their godliness. Paul himself lived to please God. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, we are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. And his priority for the church here is no different. And he begins by explaining that they had a calling from God to be sanctified. In other words, to be holy, to be set apart. In our little passage tonight, there are three occasions on which the word holy appears. We see it in verse 3 where it's translated as sanctified, but then it also pops up in verse 4 and in verse 7. In the area of sex, this meant avoiding sexual immorality. This isn't a phrase that we use every day, but it refers to any form of illicit sexual intercourse or generally any immoral sexual relationship. Paul is calling them instead to a life of purity. And I can't emphasize enough how different this calling for them to be holy was different to the culture that was round about them. In Thessalonica, sexual immorality was widespread, so much so that the emperor had to bring in law reforms to uh, reform marriage. Before Paul's time, there was a man called Demosthenes, sorry, I was, that's, a, that's a struggle to say it, Demosthenes, and he described what went on in Thessalonica like this. It should come up on the, the screen. We have mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our bo daily bodies' needs, and wives to bear as legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. It's quite shocking to see this written down in black and white, but this was normal behavior in the culture of Thessalonica. And it's important that we understand this because this is the background that these believers were coming from. God's calling to holiness and to purity was a new way of life for them. As Paul writes to them in this section of 
his letter. He's helping them understand how they can live lives that please God. And they've started well. When, he, when he's speaking to them in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, he makes it clear that they're living in a way that pleases God. He just wants them to do this more and more. They'd received the word of God, which they'd heard from Paul, and they'd accepted it, not as Paul's words, but as God's words. And it was an, it was an encouraging start, an encouraging start to this new phase of their life. My son has just started at primary school, and we got his first report card uh, through this week. And uh, it says something similar. It says lots of nice things about him, and it ends with this phrase, a good start to primary one. How cute. But I'm not going along to his parents' evening in a couple of weeks' time, expecting the teacher to say, nothing more for us to do here. I'm, just, I'm not expecting that. No, this, this is a good start. This is a good start for my son. And as I say, it even says that. But they're looking for more from Noah. And we, when we go along, we'll be talking about the things that he needs to grow in and develop in. And in the same way, Paul is calling the Thessalonians to keep doing what they're doing, but to do it more and more. He's encouraged by their start, but his concern is for how they finish. He's spurring them on here in this passage. And I hope that you can, you can see the logic here. He's trying to say that the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. As the years go on in their walk with God, would they still be living sexually moral lives? That was the question. Would they still be pure? When the spiritual highs of new birth and baptisms and growth in this new Christian community had plateaued, would a calling to please God still be their everything? Where would they be in two or five or ten years from now? After a few years of marriage, would they still be as committed to their spouse? Or as the years of singleness stretched into decades, would they still remain pure and holy? And whether married or unmarried, would these new converts start looking for pleasure outside of the holy lives that God had called them to? What about us? What about me? What about you? We can hide our behaviors and we can delete things, but it's a sobering thought to think that the God of the universe isn't thwarted by that, thwarted by that. The psalmist tells us that God knows the secrets of the heart. But practically speaking, though, what did this calling from God, this call to sexual purity, actually involve? Well, it's down there in verses 4 to 6, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. You'll see in the footnote, uh, in the church Bibles anyway, that learn to control your own body is put in some translations as learn to live with your own wife or learn to acquire a wife. But I'm, I'm not persuaded that either of these translations uh, is the one that we should go with. I think the, the NIV has got it right when it talks about our own body. The word that Paul uses for body here is used on six other occasions in the New Testament to describe a person's body, not a wife. And in relation to the, the idea that it might mean learn to acquire a wife, well, I think that would have been a, an alien concept in a culture where marriages were arranged. 
Paul's point here, as he instructs these new Christians, is that they need to be disciplined with their bodies. They're to be distinct from the people around them who don't know God. Holy and honorable. That's how they're to be with their bodies. Notice that Paul doesn't say avoid sex in this passage. Remember that God created sexuality and sex, and he created it for men and women to enjoy within marriage. It's not sex that's the problem here. It's the misuse of it. And so this calling from God to be sanctified is not only a a command not to do something, namely sexual immorality. It is that, of course it is, but it's also a calling to enjoy God's gift properly in the way that he created it and the way that he intended it. I think it's crucial in this passage that the lust of the unbelieving Gentiles around about these Christians is linked to not knowing God. Lust, you see, is at the very heart of sexual immorality. And in this passage, Paul attaches it to an absence of knowing God. His point is that if we know God, we'll live distinctly in all areas of our lives, including sexual activity, as we seek to please God, as we seek out to, seek to live out this calling in our lives to holiness. We'll live distinctly because we'll understand God's plan for humankind, his design for sex, and we'll live to please him rather than pleasing ourselves. Our knowledge of God or our, our, our lack of knowledge will be shown in our approach to sex as we control our bodies in holy and honorable ways and in how we avoid sexual immorality. I was looking at the Scottish government's website this week to see how early sex education starts. And from what I can make out, it starts in primary school. And the Scottish government's message will, by and large, be quite different to this call to holiness. Their definitions of who sex is for will be distinct to the Bible's teaching. And I was wondering as I was looking at this, whether we are communicating to young people and to new Christians the proper role of sexual relationships. I think traditionally Christians are a little bit shy about this topic, but that doesn't help our young people and it doesn't help new Christians. They need to know what God's calling is for this area of their lives. They need to know God's glorious design for men and women. And if we don't say something, schools and TV will step in and we can be sure their message will be quite different to this one. The calling from God here is to be sanctified, to be holy, to avoid sexual immorality. That's what people who know God do. And it's because people who know God know his word. They know that God gives us sexuality, not just for our enjoyment, but as a representation of his love for us. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife reflects that of Christ and the church. The teaching of the Bible is that there's a spiritual dimension to the marriage relationship. And this seems to be where Paul is going down in verse 6 when he commands that in this matter, no one should take advantage of a brother or a sister. A believer's spouse is not just a spouse, but a brother or sister 
in Christ. In other words, a fellow believer. If we're tempted towards some kind of sexual experience outside of marriage, we're not just damaging another marriage, or indeed our own marriage. We're wronging a brother or sister in Christ. And so the call in this passage is a call from God to be sanctified, to control the body in a way that is holy and that is honorable. And this calling must be embraced and lived out. They've started well, Paul says, but he's urging them in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And they simply must do it. They simply must follow this calling because there's a warning in this passage to those who don't live out God's calling to live a holy life. There's a warning from God, and that's my second point. We see this warning from God in verse 6, the, the, the second part of it there. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. This is a clear warning that this calling from God to holiness and sexual purity isn't an optional extra for serious Christians. It's not like a call on your mobile phone uh, that you can hit the green answer button uh, or the red decline button. No, God's call to holiness is vital, it's crucial, and the warning is severe. And that is because punishment from God awaits those who commit these sins. They cannot say that they weren't warned, since verse 6 ends by saying that they've been told, they've been, they've been warned before these, these Thessalonians. But the question is, will they heed the warning? Will we heed the warning? I don't know about you, but when I read passages uh, like this, I'm, I'm tempted to try and explain them away. Uh, when, when he says punish, he doesn't really mean punish us. I mean, Jesus died for our sins after all. What about verses to do with God's patience and his long-suffering? What about God's never-stopping, never-breaking, always-and-forever love? Well, let's take a moment to understand what Paul is actually saying. Let's read that again. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Paul is giving a warning here that must be taken seriously. In, in some translations, the warning at the end of verse 6, that God will punish all who commit such sins, actually can be translated as the Lord is an avenger in all these things. The idea of the Lord being an avenger is an Old Testament idea, just as we saw in Psalm 94 earlier on. It's this idea that God will avenge evil done to others. In other words, he'll, he'll inflict harm on people in return for the wrongs that they have done to others. That avenging will ultimately take place when Jesus returns. This punishment is real. This judgment is real. Hell is real. The future return of Jesus is very real. And Paul's point is that there's eternal consequences for not heeding God's warning here, that he will punish those who commit the sins described here. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, Adam, you're, you're preaching to the converted here. We know that sexual immorality is wrong. We get that Jesus is coming back as a judge. We get that this is a warning to a group of new believers who you know, recently put behind them uh, sexually immoral lifestyles. But is there really a warning here for us today? Well, I think if we're being honest, our culture is as obsessed by sex every bit as the Thessalonian culture. It's hard to avoid it. On TV, there's adverts and there's programs that promote 
sexual immorality. If we go shopping, we'll see magazines and shops that, that push a sexually immoral lifestyle. We cannot escape our sex-obsessed culture. And I haven't even mentioned the internet yet. You see, our society is no different to the society in which Paul lived in. But that's a society, you might say. We, we're the church, you know, we're, the, we're different. We're in the world, but not of it. Well, last year, uh, the Barna Group, uh, a polling company, did a nationwide survey in the States about pornography, interviewing more than 3,000 teenagers and young adults and adults and pastors and youth pastors. And if you take the time to read the results, you can, you can find them online, you'll see the extent of the problem in the church. It is staggering as much as it is saddening. You'd expect the standard of behavior to be noticeably better in the church, but it absolutely isn't. And I have no reason to suspect that if they did the survey in the UK or in Scotland or in Edinburgh or even this church, that the picture would be much rosier. God's warning about this punishment is as needed today as it was at the time that it was originally given. Paul is warning his readers then and now that punishment from the Lord Jesus comes to all those who follow a sexually immoral lifestyle. God will not stand for such willful obedience and he will act decisively. And I want to ask you tonight that if you're involved in this lifestyle, whether you will heed this warning tonight, no matter how small your sin is that you've, you've convinced yourself that it is stop indulging yourself. In J.C. Ryle's work called Thoughts for Young Men, he, he says this, and we can have it up on uh, the screen. Nothing darkens the eyes of the mind so much and deadens the conscience so surely as an allowed sin. It may be a little one, but it is not the less dangerous for all that. A small leak will sink a great ship, and a small spark will kindle a great fire, and a little allowed sin in like manner will ruin an immortal soul. Take my advice and never spare a little sin. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Don't indulge sin. Don't spare little sins, as Ryle puts it. This is not about moderation. It's about annihilation. We need to kill these sins. If, if you don't, uh, I can't stand here tonight and give you any reason why you should be spared the warning that's there in verse 6. You're not controlling your body in a way that's holy and honorable. You're displaying passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God. And you're not living the holy and pure life that God called them and you to. There's no reason that if you're behaving like this that you won't experience the judgment of God that's in this passage. Stop judging me, you might say. Well, let me lovingly say that if you reject this instruction, it's not me or anyone else here tonight that you're rejecting. It's God you're rejecting. That's what the start of verse 8 says. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. And can I also say earnestly that this warning is here that you might correct what you're doing. 
This is not about judging you. This is not judgment. The judgment is still to come. What I'm showing you from the Bible is a warning of the judgment to come. And so the question is, will you listen to this warning tonight? Will you do something about it? Will you put to death this sin? It's a a clear warning, and it is a very real warning. And if you heed this warning tonight, the wonderful news is that this passage reveals a helper from God, a helper from God who enables you to receive these instructions and to live a life of holiness and purity. We have a helper from God, and that's my my final point this evening. Look with me again at verse 8. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. The helper from God is his Holy Spirit. As I said earlier, Paul is convinced that the Holy Spirit is at work in this group of believers. We saw that actually a few weeks ago in chapter 1. If you look at, flick back to chapter 1 and look at verses 4 to 6 with me. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. God gives his Holy Spirit to all believers. The self-control that is needed to control your body in a way that is holy and honorable is only possible with the help of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is a sure sign of the help and the presence of God's Spirit in our life. And praise God if you are seeing evidence of this in your life. God not only calls us to be holy and warns us of the punishment to come if we're not holy, but he also helps us to be holy through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within believers, and he helps us with God's, in God's work. The Holy Spirit gives us all we need to please God and to serve him. I don't know everyone's story here tonight, but if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you. He won't allow you to dwell in your sin. He'll help you out of it. He'll help you in the area of self-control and in holiness. He'll not let you live uh, the way that you used to live or in a way like the culture around about you. He'll keep conforming you to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit is at work in other believers, and that's why it's important that we keep meeting together with other believers as part of a church family so that we can spur each other on in our walk with God. God also gives us the sword of the Spirit, which is the the Word of God, the Bible. And as well as being able to read the Bible for ourselves, He gives us uh, the Spirit uh, in, in, in the preaching of the Word. The Holy Spirit is also at work through that. And when the the Bible is faithfully preached, it comes not just with words and with power, but with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Let me maybe speak to you if the Holy Spirit has been helping to point out areas of sexual immorality in your life. Let me say that if you feel like you're stumbling, come to God. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says that whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. When it comes to this sin, when it comes to any sin, our goal must be to confess it, not to conceal it. 
Confess your sin. Jesus took the punishment for sexual sin and all sins when he died on the cross at Calvary. There's forgiveness available to you even tonight. 1 John chapter 1 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Often when people talk about their their sexual sin, they talk about how dirty they feel. Well, the amazing news here is that you can experience purification from that sin. We can be purified from all unrighteousness, all sinfulness. We've all sinned and we've all wronged other people. We've all rejected God's instructions at different times in our lives, but we can deal with that here and now. We can come to Jesus now for the first time or for the umpteenth time and seek forgiveness so that when he comes back as the avenger, we will be spared. In the meantime, though, as we wait, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can spur each other on in the calling that God has for us to be sexually pure and not to give in to the sex-obsessed culture that is round about us. How can we, uh, how can we do that practically then? Let's get, let's get practical. Well, I was discussing this with a friend from another church uh, this week who, I, who I, I think they do quite well in this area in terms of holding each other accountable. And I've got some questions that they use uh, that we can also use uh, in our conversations with our friends uh, and with our spouses to hold each other accountable in this area. We're not to conceal our sin, we're to confess it. And maybe these, these questions will help you uh, down that road. So here's the, here's the questions. What has been more important to you than God in the last week? Has your life displayed a love for Jesus and a joy because of Jesus this week? What in the Bible this week has taught you, rebuked you, corrected you, or trained you in righteousness? Have you given yourself to deep, heartfelt prayer, adoring God, confessing sin, interceding for others? And maybe some more, more pointed ones here. Is your public life and devotion for Jesus a mirror of your private life and your devotion to Jesus? Have you been with someone this week in a situation that could be misunderstood or deemed inappropriate? Have there been times when you have lost self-control because of lust? Has your use of the internet honored Jesus this week? These are just some questions, some ideas that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can help each other spur one another on to live holy lives. Let's help each other keep hold of Paul's vision for the Christian life as being a life that is marked by holiness and that is lived in order to please God. A life lived in line with the clear guidance and the warnings contained in this passage and throughout the Bible about what holiness looks like, particularly one that is marked by self-control, which is the fruit of the Spirit who God gives us to help us live for Him. Let's take a moment now and we'll bow and pray.